Um, there's so much that could be said here. This issue of gospel-driven reconciliation. We started this last week. We watched a video, and um, Kevin had mentioned that there is an eight-part series on uh, Right Now Media taken from Peacemakers, which is uh, everything started with this book that Ken Sandy wrote. And Ken Sandy is not a pastor. He is a uh, lawyer by profession who, uh, obviously, lawyers do some reconciliation. They do some mediation. Uh, but he wanted to approach it from a biblical standpoint, right? And his launching verse is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they were called children of God. Uh, that there is uh, a role for us in the kingdom as peacemakers. Now, certainly, the primary peace that needs to be achieved is peace between God and man. That, um, that, uh, that you know, unless your relationship is right with your Father in heaven, then, you know, all other peace really is, is ultimately inescapable. Um, is, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, so he's approaching it from a biblical, gospel-driven standpoint. And that's what we want to look at today. We're just touching on the surface of it. And, and, I, and I think as my wife and I were talking about it, we were like there's a need for this for uh, probably deeper, a deeper dive into this. So I'm working out how that's actually going to work out, um, how we're going to go through that material together as the body of Christ. So in the body of Christ, right, we do have as, as loving as you guys are, as much as I appreciate you, um, you, there is conflict in the body of Christ, right? We talked about this last week. Uh, it's not all the time, but it does rear its ugly head from time to time, right? And we realize as believers that it's that sin nature that resides within, that's in our heart, um, that, that, that causes these desires um, to rise to the surface that are in tension with somebody else's desires, right? That's the issue, right? There are differing desires. And we'll hit the issue of, of preferences later on. Um, but different desires, different uh, outcomes that people want to achieve, and it doesn't always happen that way. And both people can have what they want. So there are arguments. There is, There are disputes. So... The Bible recognizes from start to finish this issue of conflict, right? We see it at the very beginning, right? Cain and Abel, there's a conflict there. Um, and the outcome is death, right? And, and, and so from the very beginning, there's this issue of conflict that needs to be handled and handled the right way. And as Moses was uh, being instructed by God on how to set up this new nation um, as they were wandering into the wilderness in this book uh, of worship called Leviticus. Uh, this is interesting. It's, it's kind of this uh, recounting of the Ten Commandments or part of the Ten Commandments. And, and, then, and then Moses, or God gives us this information. He says, Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, right? So there's this recognition that, that sin has to be dealt with, that there's going to be conflict, right? So there's the kind of conflict where two people just don't get along. They, they disagree on how, to, how something's supposed to happen, right? 
And, and in Philippians, we'll go there in a minute, Yodia and Syntyche, or Syntyche, however you want to say it, Jesus loving women who are serving for the cause of the Great Commission, and there's this, this tension, right? All right, so there's tension that happens like that, and, and there's conflict that has to be dealt with, and there's just the conflict of, you know, you see a brother caught in sin, or a sister, and you have to go address that. There has, there's going to be conflict there, and how do you handle it the right way? And here in Leviticus, uh, God is telling us, you know, don't not deal with it, All right? This is what I find to be most disturbing, I think, as a pastor, um, when I hear people say, well, that's not my issue. I, I'm not their keeper. Well, here's the, the hard truth. In the body of Christ, we, we take care of each other, All right? There is this, this mutual watching over, this policing in the body of Christ. When I say policing, I mean in a good way. And so we can't not say things. I think it's easier not to say something, right? It's easier just to kind of let it ride, okay? Not, not address the issue, the hard issue. The more loving thing, Moses tells us, and so that we don't share in their guilt, right? So in this passage, somebody's sinning, right? Maybe they're spreading slander, and you just don't say anything about it. Well, then not saying something actually brings you into sharing in the guilt because you're not addressing the issue. Are we clear on that? And so love dictates that we do say something. And so people say, well, who am I to say something? Isn't that your job, Pastor Jay? Well, ultimately, it probably would be one of the elders that need to address it. But I think the way Jesus presents it, if somebody's caught in sin, well, you go, personally, you go address them one-on-one. There has to be this point where you go say something. And right, and in our statement of faith, in our covenant statement, I should say, we actually say we invite people to speak into our lives to say something if there is an issue that needs to be dealt with. But the primary reason people give, they're afraid. Like, what am I going to say? I don't know what to say. I don't know how to handle this. Well, Paul, as he's talking about the spread of the gospel and the role that the church in Rome would play in it, he says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, full of the gospel, the gospel of love, filled with knowledge and are competent. Nutheo, that word for counseling that we use. You are competent to instruct. The NIV says, other versions say admonish, and I think that's the, the NASB, and then teach one another. That, that we are competent to do that. Now, there are, there's a spectrum of competence, obviously. But if you're going to float through your Christian life saying, I'm not competent to do that, and you start, you know, day one, as a believer, right, as a newborn believer, we kind of get that, right? You want to grow in your faith some. But if 25 years later you're saying, I, who am I to say something? Then there's an issue there. And I'm trying to load guilt up on you, but you need to step it up and read the Bible and get some knowledge. Understand what the Scriptures say. And so Paul says, I, I, I am confident, right? And his confidence is, it, it, it ultimately is, is in the Word of God, right? Because the Word of God is, is, um, it is useful, right? That word rebuking, admonishing, teaching, correcting, training in righteousness. So you, we use the Word of God. That's where the source of the gospel is, right? It's we, you know, Jesus is the center, the focus. He's the, the one who has given us the gospel through his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. But the Bible tells us about that. And the Bible tells us of everything that flows from all the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so scripture is useful to lead us to that end. So we can't, you know, throw our hands up in there and say, who am I to say anything? I, it's just not my place to, to, to be a part of this. Well, then Leviticus would say, well, you share in the guilt. That's, it's your problem if we're in the body of Christ. And so Paul, as he, as he writes to the letter to the church at Philippi, um, you know, I think one of the main reasons he writes this letter is because he loves this church so much, and I believe he loves these two ladies so much that he's wanting to address it. But certainly he doesn't make the whole letter about them. You know, like the letter of Philemon about, you know, Onesimus. It's, it's, it's you know, he, he wants to deal with, uh, he wants to praise them, and he wants to encourage them in their sanctification. He wants to address the Judaizers. But, but he sources uh, dealing with the conflict between Yodian and Syntyche with what, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the text. I plead with Yodia and Syntyche, I plead with Syntyche, or Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, we'll, we'll, let's finish reading this. I'll get back to that. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So he's like, help them. They need you guys to come alongside them. There's a difficulty there. And if you focus on that, of the same mind, what is that mind? That mind is a gospel mindset. Because just prior to that, in chapter 2, we don't want to, you know, so many, so many times to start blocking off passages because the pastor, you know, it's been three months since he was in chapter 2, and now he's in chapter 4, and it just has nothing to do with each other. Well, no, it's a letter to be read at one time. And so in their mind, the same mind is the mindset of what? It's the mindset of Christ. It is beautiful passage of Scripture. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, wouldn't that head off or solve most conflict that happens in marriages? parents and children, in the body of Christ. If you have this mindset at work, what a revolutionary difference that's going to make. I mean, you know, you can't control what, you know, the other believers, the, the unbelievers are doing right at work, but, but certainly if you approach things this way, you, Paul's going to go on to say, don't complain, and you'll shine like a light in the crooked world that we live in. And so really, I think here we come to the level of preferences, Right? I mean, sometimes it's just so clear. It's a sin issue, right? But I would say a large part of the time, there are just, it's just preferences that people are dealing with. And, and, and you want your preference to win the day because your preference is better. Right? Somehow your preference is going to exalt you. It's going to put you in a place where other people look at you and go, oh, look at you. And so it becomes about you. He says, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. And sometimes people say, well, does that mean that I never get my way? It might mean that. 
it might mean that. I think love dictates that if you never get your way, you never get your way. But I do believe that if you're constantly trying to live this way, God is going to be transforming your heart. And then it's just, it's really not going to matter to you whether you get your way or not. And I, I, I guess I have to qualify things. I mean, sometimes your preference could be what's best for the situation. Right? It, it could be that it really, you know, it's not a sin issue, but it would help the family or it would help the church to function better, right? And so you have to navigate that. You don't just roll over and die and let things go on horribly because somebody has, you know, a, a weird preference. I just don't have time to address that. So I want to go through, um, now I'm going to go through some statements about addressing conflict with a gospel mindset. And this is, again, is, you know, I don't have an original thought in my head, okay? Um, everything I have is, in my mind is something I've read somewhere at some time. I can tell you specifically, this is from Ken Sandy, okay? He goes through these uh, addressing conflict and just particularly from a gospel mindset, some points here. I didn't give all of them. So I'll have the, the negative and then the positive, right? If we're addressing conflict apart from a gospel mindset, and then I'll give the issues, and then if we're addressing it from a gospel mindset, then. So there'll be negative and positive here. If we're addressing conflict apart from the gospel, then our tendency is to minimize our sin. And oh, aren't we good at that, right? Woo! We have this distorted, you know, these rose-colored glasses, you know, in our mind that we, we view ourselves in certain circumstances. We view ourselves wrongly. And when it comes to conflict, right, when you're dealing with it, we have this mental checklist of, you know, this person, and this is, boom, boom, this is them, and things they've done wrong. And how you're going to counter those things. When they, when they, start, when they start arguing, okay, how are you going to work through that list? Right? Maybe I'm the only one who thinks that. I know you guys will do that. We have this checklist. We're minimizing our sin, right? And this is the second G, right? Remember those four Gs that Ken Sandy talks about? Glorify God, get the log out, right? This is the point where if you're minimizing your sin, right, you've got that log in your eye. I was amazed when I, when I just Googled get the log out of your eye. The number of artists love this picture. They love this concept of getting the log out of your eye. Pointing out someone's sin doesn't minimize yours, right? This next one, I love this next one. This is good. I, I don't know. I've never seen this, reverendfun.com. I should go there and just start looking at it, waste some time. Ha ha, you just told him that he has a splinter in his eye. This is the guy with the log in his eye, right? <laughs> and you have a beam in yours. Look at that. Isn't that how we function in life? And here's a good one, though. I threw this in for the kids, but yeah, all the little boys aren't here today. He says, he says, ah, that's better. That's better. He took the plank out of his eye, right? And he's, he's covering it up. He feels better. He took the plank out so he can, he can see clearly. Right? And the issue is we minimize our sin. Sometimes we, we, act like, we act like we don't have any sin, right? There's nothing wrong with the way we live, right? And John says, look, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen to verse 9. Praise God, I cling to that every single day. We claim 
we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us, right? If we, this is one of the problems with the world, right? The world has redefined what sin is, or totally taken sin out of our, our way of thinking so that nobody sins. But if we are addressing conflict in a gospel framework, then we pursue reconciliation even if we believe we've not sinned. Now, why do I say it that way? Because sometimes issues happen and you haven't done anything. Literally, you, you, you haven't done anything. So you've gone through the second G, get the log out. You've gone through this. There's seven A's to the second G. This guy's so good. He thinks just like I do. Seven A's from the second G. And you're like, okay, I've dealt with everything. All right. Some people are tempted to say this: that person sinned. I haven't done anything. I, they just got to. They got to get a grip. They got to. They got to. They need to just wake up and smell the coffee, and they need to realize that they've sinned. Okay. They need to deal with it. What did Leviticus say? Well, you share in their guilt if you're not going to help deal with an issue. Right? If there's tension in a relationship and you think you haven't done anything, you're not willing to pursue reconciliation, you're just like, I don't think that's love at all. And so we need to pursue reconciliation as much as we can at all times. If we're addressing, recon- uh, addressing conflict apart from the gospel, our tendency is to pursue self-vindication. Now, this would address the second G, glorify God, not yourself. And this is where I found myself over the past year was wanting vindication in several instances. I just wanted to be vindicated. I wanted to be like, see, you're wrong, I'm right. You should come to me and say you're sorry. You guys never feel that way, do you? That's, that's an issue for me. And if we're always pursuing the glory of God, then it's about God, okay, and it's about the other person being built up in Christ, not about you feeling good about yourself because everybody knows that you weren't wrong after all and that other person's whacked. Okay. So we have to deal with it from a gospel point of view, right? We have to view all of life through the glory of God. It's a very familiar verse. But it really, what, what Paul's addressing here in this passage is conflict in the church, right? There were the people who felt like they had all this liberty in Corinth, and there were people who were you know, very much, okay, rule keeper law people. And, and Paul's like, look, whatever you do, eat or drink, if you're eating a big steak, drinking a cup of wine, whatever, do it all for the glory of God. And that'll control the way you live and think. And with respect to vindication, this is, this is uh, I should have had this verse prior. And this is, this is what I kept telling myself when I was dealing with this, this issue of wanting to be vindicated. When was it that Jesus was vindicated? Was he vindicated in the flesh? No, it was after he was crucified, right? This passage in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, I should say, Paul's talking about you know, how things ought to function in the church. And this is really the gospel, right? Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, the incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit, right? That's, that's a really a shorthand for saying he was crucified, buried, and resurrected by the Spirit. And that was his vindication, right? 
seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. Vindication may not come ever in this life. Right? So we want to deal with conflict from a gospel framework and pursue the glory of God, not self. Right? This really will, it's kind of like having, you know, the mindset of Christ and preferring others over yourselves. That's huge, right? But if you begin with that, in addition to this is about God and his glory, not me, then that's going to take you a long way in dealing with conflict. If we're dealing with conflict, apart from the gospel, when people mistreat us, we view them as enemies and we treat them as enemies. Has ever had that happen to you? Somebody that, you know, previously was somebody that you were okay with, hung out with sometimes, maybe you hung out with them a lot. All of a sudden there's this conflict and you have this, this crazy flip of a mindset where all of a sudden this person that used to be texting all the time, this person that used to you know, go out and do whatever with, they're all of a sudden, they're the enemy. You been there before? <laughs> That's what sin does. It twists our mind, it twists our thinking. And the gospel teaches us, right, and we looked at this passage last week, right, that you know, if you go back up a little bit, and oh, actually looked at the Ephesians version of this, but Paul says this, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, right, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who have received forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Well, that's not a problem if everybody's lovey-dovey and you're only dealing with people who think just like you do and do like you do and, and, and you're on the same page and everything. It only becomes an effort if you're dealing with people who aren't so easy, somebody who may have sinned against you, somebody whose preferences that you just like, I cannot, you know what, I just, I can't jive with this person. They think this, I think that. They want to do it this way, I don't do it that way. I don't know how they live their lives the way they live their lives. I can just agree to exist in the body of Christ with this person, and we'll be just fine. No, we can't live that way. They are not enemies. Who did Jesus die for? He died for his enemies. He died for people who hated him. Right? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were at enmity with God. That's the whole concept of reconciliation. Before we were reconciled, Colossians tells us, we were hostile towards God. Romans 8, we were hostile in our minds towards God. We were enemies. And so do we wait to pursue reconciliation until that person somehow comes around and has a change of mind and starts doing nice things to you and for you? That's what we want, right? We love we love. That person who sinned against you is not your enemy. That person who sinned against you is created in the image of God. They're a sinner just like you are. They're in desperate need of gospel forgiveness just like you. And they're being transformed from glory to glory by the gospel of Jesus Christ just like you are. So if we have that that perspective on that person with whom you're having conflict, right? It's about God's glory. Christ gave his life for them. They're creating the image of God. They need forgiveness just like I need forgiveness. 
God is doing a work in them. God is transforming them, and they're dealing with sin struggles just like I'm dealing with sin struggles. Well, that'll give you some patience, right? Now, this is, I guess, assuming that this person's a believer, right? I mean, if, if they're an unbeliever, it's, yes, they're creating the image of God. Yes, they're a sinner. Yes, they're in desperate need of gospel forgiveness. But number four really would only apply to believers. Does that make sense? It should. So if we're addressing conflict from gospel framework, then we understand that God is at work in their lives just as much as he's at work in your life. We have two more. We're going to fly through here. For addressing gospel conflict, apart from the gospel, our tendency is to give up on relationships easily. Right? Isn't that, isn't that what we want to do, right? It becomes work. This is one of the good things about being part of a small local church, guys. Okay? It's so easy. I mean, could you imagine if you attended, and I'm not picking on Woodside. I mean, there are lots of good, godly, Jesus-loving, beautiful people at Woodside. I'm saying it's big, okay? And, and or any big church, whatever. You walk in and sit down. You don't have to deal with anybody. Just go in, get your warm, warm uh, Bible fuzzies and sing your songs and walk out. And you don't have to deal with anybody. And you feel good about yourself all the time. Right? And so really there's not this conflict that you have to deal with. But when you're in a small church and there's conflict, you have to deal with it, right? Because, hey, you guys are going to stand up in a minute and start looking at each other. And he's going to walk past the person and not say something. You know, this ongoing tension as you gather for the women's small group or as the guys gather for their breakfast or whatever and, and not deal with it? It's easy to give up. Jesus sets the bar pretty high. He's like, look. You know, before he addresses each of church discipline, Peter says, hey, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister's sins against me? Seven times? And Peter thought he had that high ground. Peter thought he was like real spiritual. He was like, yeah. For the reasons I keep watching The Chosen last night, I'm laying there watching The Chosen, and it was uh, like the fifth time I'd watch Nicodemus and Jesus together. And and Kristen says, "Are you all right?" Like, yeah, I'm crying. This is good. <laughs> but it, in in The Chosen, Peter, I think they, I think it's not like they nailed his personality. Right? I can just I can't wait for him to say this to Jesus in The Chosen. How many times, Jesus? How many times should I? Yeah, I'm going to do it seven times. What do you think about that, Jesus? And he says, no, 70 times seven. That's a lot of patience, friends. That's a lot of clothing yourselves, right, with humility and patience and kindness. It's a lot of clothes change. All right. And so we have to be long-suffering, right? Because we know what? God has been long-suffering in our lives. We portray the great work of the gospel Oopses in our lives. lives. Has God been patient with you? How many times have you been forgiven? You get the point. And really, this point dovetails with the last point. If we're addressing conflict apart from the gospel, we forget how much we've been forgiven, right? Again, in Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. We remember the great forgiveness which is ours in Christ, so we forgive freely because we've been forgiven. Cost, it was great cost, the cost of Jesus' life, that we're forgiven freely. So this is really, um, this is kind of the, like the, the tip of the iceberg with this gospel-driven conflict management reconciliation. Um, 
And so I, I, hope to, I hope to make this a big issue for us this year because I know this is where we live, right? In our marriages, in our relationships in the church, at work, etc. Right? We need to be peacemakers. I think this is important for us as a body of Christ to bring glory to God. So we're going to sing a song.